morning, I am reading from Exodus chapter 17. If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirst there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I'll be standing there in front of you at the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to have you here today. Um, this is one of those interesting texts, and you might ask yourself the question, we're in the season of Lent, and the, the, the theme of this sermon series is about reflecting Jesus. So why are we going to the Old Testament to talk about a story that Jesus isn't even there? So if that's your question, what I want you to do is just take a a slow, meandering walk through this story with me. Maybe just leave your attention here a little bit longer. All right, because I want to I submit to you today that this is the perfect story to show that Scripture points to Jesus. Now, not every text or story is re directly related to Jesus, but it's clear as we read the Gospels that the writers want to reach back into the Old Testament over and over and over again and say, here is Jesus, there is Jesus. It all points to Jesus. It all gestures to Jesus. And if that's true, if that's true about Scripture, here's the thing. So should we. That everything we do, gestures, points, looks to Jesus. Every word of worship, every moment of prayer, every sermon, every ministry, it's all pointing to Jesus. It's all about his reconciliation with the world. Every act uh, of care or compassion, all of it needs to point to Jesus. So let's jump in, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, for this day, as we feel the warm sun on our faces, as spring is hanging right over the horizon, we give you praise. Father, I pray in this moment that you will turn our hearts and our minds to your word, that you will shape us and form us, transform us, teach us to trust you. Open our eyes that we might see Jesus on every page in Scripture, in every page of our lives. And to that end, Father, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching. I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And together we all say, 
Amen. All right, so let's, let's take a glance at this kind of weird and wonderful story. Here is Israel, and they're in the wilderness, and they're suffering. And if you were to take a page back, if you were to go to Exodus chapter 16, what you would see is that they were already suffering. Uh, they were hungry, and God gave them manna. God has already provided them with food. It's the miraculous food that kind of falls from heaven like dew and arrives every morning for the Israelites to eat because there's no food in the desert. And if you were to take a page back even one more further, what you would see is that the Israelites have just crossed the Red Sea. They have been delivered from Egypt, and they are being brought to the promised land, but really they're going to make a couple of stops along the way. First stop is at Sinai. We're not there yet. We don't have the law yet, but we're in this wilderness. And they're coming into the promise of God. They're, they're not on the first date with God. This isn't the first time they've met God. They've experienced some pretty powerful things in Egypt, the witness of God's power, but do we really trust God? And they go to this place where it's, it's dry. There's no water, and not having water is a serious thing. And in that moment, Israel is thirsty, and it's tired, and it's worn out, and it's scared, and it's trying to find the way. And in that moment, God meets their need. And maybe the message of this text and the message we need to hear today is that when you're tired and you're thirsty and you're worn out and you're scared, God's going to meet your need. God is going to provide for you. God, God is faithful. God was faithful to the Israelites. God will be faithful to you. But if you were to keep the camera on a little bit longer... If we were to look just a little bit deeper, Israel is in a place of wilderness, is in a place of, of wandering, but most of us live in a bubble that's relatively free from suffering. I mean, we don't exist, we don't live in a place that has a totalitarian government. We don't live at a time where there's a bubonic plague destroying everything. Our infant mortality isn't that bad. We don't live in a time where war is decimating our city. We live in a time that's pretty good in a place that's pretty safe. And so it's shocking to us when we live in this place of relatively happiness how unhappy we actually are. We still experience a deep longing for something more. And this isn't some sort of just like selfish appetite that just needs to consume. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a deep longing for something that is more real than what we can possibly experience in our reality right now. We hunger for God. And when we experience that moment, we realize we are still in the wilderness. We're still longing for that place that we can call home. We're longing for the promises of God to be revealed in us and through us and around us. But even in this wilderness, God provides for you. God will meet your needs. But I wonder what happens if we let the camera keep rolling and we linger on just a little bit more. This week I read this uh, essay by C.S. Lewis. 
If you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he wrote the Narnia Chronicles, and, but his real most valuable work is, is in his essays, the kind of his nonfiction, and, and he wrote a ton of books there. And I haven't spent a lot of time with C.S. Lewis in like 10 years, um, and I was kind of amazed that there was this essay that I hadn't even read yet. It was called God in the Dock. And it's kind of compiled with a bunch of his other essays. You can read it in a book. And, and it's, it, I had this one reflection. It's amazing to me how modern C.S. Lewis is now. You know, he only wrote about 70 years ago. And, and even in that space and time, what he says doesn't land the same way as I'm sure he did when he thought he wrote it. Like the, the culture has shifted and changed out from under Lewis. I mean, I think, you know, Narnia is always going to be Narnia, but... But there's something, there's something here. But he talks about God in the dock. And it led me back to Exodus 17 to, to figure out why, why is this text here? I mean, why, are they, why is the author of Exodus bothering to tell us this story? Because the other story about the rock and Moses and the staff is much more exciting. These two stories kind of serve as the, the, the beginning and the end of the wilderness story. And you probably know the other one a little bit better. That's the story of why Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. Because he, he disobeys God. He's supposed to speak to the rock, but he hits the rock. And because of that, he's not allowed to go uh, into Canaan. What seems like a really odd thing for God to do, especially when maybe Moses just got confused because last time he hit the rock, why, why is it wrong this time? But in the wilderness narratives, what we're going to see from this part in Exodus on through Numbers is that complaint is understood as disbelief. Or another way to think about that is, is complaint is a lack of faithfulness. And in this story, Moses responds to the complaint in an interesting way. I mean, it, it, seems, it seems rational. It seems logical for Israel to lodge this complaint. Like, hey, you led us out of this place, but you haven't had the foresight to lead us to a place that actually has water. There's a lot of us, Moses, and if we don't drink, we're going we're gonna to die. But Moses responds to the complaint by going to God and saying, they're going to stone me. And maybe what they're all saying is like, look, there's no water. We're all going to die. We're going to watch our children die. We're going to watch our crops die. But Moses, we're going to watch you die first because you're the one that brought us here. On the other hand, stoning is a weird choice because that's, that's a response to a capital offense. This isn't mob justice. This is kind of legally dispensed justice. Moses might have said in, in modern terms, you know, they're going to execute me. And so what we realize is this charge is loaded. It's a, it's a charge against Moses and by extension against God. It's more than just complaint, hey, we're thirsty. Israel is suing. They're bringing Moses to court. The charge is simple. God has brought them out of Egypt to die. And this is where grumbling and complaining equates to a lack of faith. Because they know that God was powerful enough to, to defeat the gods of Egypt one by one. The battle that happens in the early part of Exodus isn't about Pharaoh versus Moses. This is about Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, against all of the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. And one by one, Yahweh defeats them. They know that God was powerful enough to be, defeat Pharaoh himself. And his army. 
They know that God is powerful enough to control nature, and they cross the Red Sea on dry land, and they know that God can feed them manna. But they think that in the wilderness, they will die of thirst. Because really, you have about three days of no water. And those three days aren't easy days. I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty before. Most of us have access to all sorts of water all the time. We don't even think about it, but very thirsty. I was in Boy Scouts, and we were going on this hike, and I hadn't adequately prepared, and so I didn't bring enough water. My water bottle was only about half full when we started, and I, I didn't realize how long the hike was going to be, and I misjudged how hot it was going to be that day, and the hike that we were on was incredibly exposed. There was no shade, and so the sun was beating down, and about, about a third of the way that we were there on this giant loop, I realized I was out of water, and the last Two miles, three miles of that hike was unbearable. And I could feel my body changing. I could feel the heat in my head. My lips were dry and crusty. And if you went a little bit further, you would begin to hallucinate. Your body's effort to conserve water to survive would shut down your organs. Israel is suffering. And the reality is sometimes, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you feel even led by God or by leaders to a place that's difficult to endure. And we try to redeem that story. We try to make it make sense. We try to make it right. Like, Tim Keller tells a story about someone in his church that was he, was, he was trying to be Christian, he was a new Christian, he was a convert, and uh, he'd just gotten this new boss, new uh, job, and his boss was kind of like a, a jerk, and he, he told a lot of dirty stories, and he made a lot of bad jokes, and so there's one day that he's in the office with his boss, and his boss starts telling all these dirty stories and jokes, and this guy, trying to be faithful to Jesus, what God called him to do in that moment, he just doesn't laugh at the stories. He doesn't react. And his boss kind of eggs him on, noticing this, and says, what are you doing? What do you mean? And the man musters up all of his courage, and he says, I just don't think that's appropriate for you to joke that way. I don't, I don't think that's right. And the boss looks at the man and says, well, I'll tell you what, you got courage, son, I'll give you that. And then like a month later, he was promoted and he became a regional manager. And it turned out because he had guts. And, and Keller's remarking on that story and he says, yeah, that, story's, that story was true, but also that story doesn't often come out that way because nine times out of 10, what happens is you don't get promoted for having guts. You just get fired because you're not playing along. You're going to suffer for doing the right thing. It won't always turn out the way you expect. I was in high school, and I hadn't prepared for a test, and so I cheated on the test. And I was so racked with guilt after I cheated on the test, I spoke to my youth minister, and my youth minister said, hey, go and talk to the teacher. Make it right. Tell him the truth. And so I go, and I talk to the teacher. And in my mind, I walk into that classroom. This is what's going to happen is I tell the teacher, hey, I'm really sorry. I need to tell you. I, I cheated on the test. And they're going to say, you know, Shane, that is such a brave move for you to do. I am so proud of you for telling the truth. Like, that's how the story's supposed to go. That's not how the story ended up. I got a zero on the test for cheating, and I got a D in the class. It didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. And you, good people are going to suffer. 
Hard things are going to happen. And this is, this is the truth of Christianity. This is the truth of Christianity. When it happens, God is going to do the same thing to you that he did in Christ. When Christ suffered, God redeemed something meaningless to something beautiful. And when you suffer, whether it's your fault or it's not your fault, whether it's happenstance or just bad luck, God can use that moment to create meaning. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. It was this time of testing, but it was also this time of refining. It was, a, it was like the older generation had too much of Egypt in their hearts. And sometimes I wonder if we have too much Egypt in our hearts. And the wandering might actually do us some good. Well, I mean, how long am I supposed to suffer until I get this? I mean, how much do I need to endure? It took Israel 40 years to learn to trust God enough to be witnesses and participants in God's plan. And so let's linger in this story a little bit longer. Let's see what happens. There are other places in the Old Testament where a prophet uses a courtroom as a setting. Israelites are going to sue God, sue Moses for what's going on. But, but this one is just a little bit different because Moses goes out to the rock and he takes the elders with him. And, and what we should read from this is the same way that if you had a dispute with your neighbor, you would take them to the elders of the city at the front gate of the city, the, the, the gates of the city. And, and what's, what's happening is God is setting up this courtroom it's significant because the elders are the people who hear cases and decide. And Moses is there, and the elders are there, and God is there. And the text tells us that God is standing there. And there's only about a handful of times that God is depicted as standing in Scripture. I counted about four. And every other time that God is standing beside the throne... It is in the case where rich people are abusing poor people. It's when God is enraged enough that he stands up to do something. That's every time except for this time. This time, God is standing in the dock. And that's not an image that really um, resonates with us in America because our courtrooms look different. In America, in a courtroom, a defendant sits behind a desk with their lawyer next to them and then the prosecutors on the other side in their own desk. But in, in Europe and in, in England, where C.S. Lewis was writing, and particularly in Russia and different parts of uh, the Mideast, uh, the, the defendant doesn't get to sit at the table. The defendant stands in a cage on the side of a courtroom. They have to stand, and it's called the dock. You stand there for your trial. And in this story, God is standing on the rock. And some translations say next, but the best is on. And God commands his Moses to hit the rock with the staff he used to turn the Nile to blood. Now, remember, you aren't supposed to touch things that God's presence is on. If you touch the ark, which is kind of the, the throne, the seat of God, you will die. When Israel's going to go to Sinai, if you, if you approach the mountain, if you touch the mountain, they were supposed to kill the people or the animals that touched it um, because God is holy. But the rock that God is standing on, he tells Moses, hit it. And you have to realize what the staff is. The staff is a God killer. 
The staff defeated the Egyptian gods one by one. The staff is the emblem of the power of God. And Moses strikes the rock that God is standing on. And instead of blood, out comes water bursting forth. Have you ever been thirsty on a hot day? And how good water tastes. Even the water that came out of your hose from your house growing up. You had to wait five seconds to get the hot water out. But after that, there was that cool moment, almost that metallic taste that came out of those spigots. It tasted so good. That at God's trial, God provides. At the end of God's trial, God provides. But let's just, let's just linger. Let's let the camera roll a little bit longer. Because Paul talks about this moment. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 1 through 4. He says, Our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the spiritual drink. He's talking about these three chapters in Exodus. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. According to Paul, the rock was Christ. In the court of the wilderness, God is standing there in the dock, accused of treason, and he takes the blow. But who is really guilty here? I mean, who should be accused? Here's the thing about Christianity that I think makes it valid. A capitalist is going to say that the problem is socialism, and socialists say the problem is, is capitalism. Republicans are going to blame Democrats, and Democrats are going to blame Republicans. But the truth of Christianity is, is that what every person holds, regardless of where you find yourself, is, is this completely cosmically capable and fallen. You hold them both at the same time. We are uniquely made in the image of God and desperately need, need of redemption. The problem is not somebody else out there doing the wrong thing. The problem is me. And we're going to suffer for the things we didn't do or we're going to suffer for the things we deserve. The truth of Christianity is that I need a savior. I need rescue. And not only does God stand in the dock, take the blow that humanity had earned, but the blow itself brings life. Now, this is where things get really weird, so just hang with me a little bit longer. Because according to Paul, the rock moves. It's the wandering rock. And Paul has done this before in 1 Corinthians. He says, you have to wear head coverings, women, out of respect uh, for your partner, but also because of the angels. And then he just leaves it there. And I want to know more about the angels. Why? Why does that need to be there? How is this rock going to move. We really need you to unpack the angel part a little bit more. And some scholars have some takes on this. Maybe it's that this moment teaches Israel how to find water in the, in the wilderness and, and aquifers. And so they dig wells, but people have been digging wells for thousands of years. Or maybe that this new spring, it forms a river, a creek, a bed, and they, they, they follow the creek bed. And so the water kind of follows them for a while in their wanderings. Or maybe it's just that the rock moved. That the life-giving nature of Jesus went with the people because the people were learning to trust. 
the rock is never the rock. The rock is Jesus. So maybe if we wanted to linger for just a moment longer, we hear this. God calls you to the rock. God calls you to drink the water that Christ provides. God calls you to the table of Christ, to eat his bread, to drink his cup, and to be nourished by the grace and mercy of God. And I wonder what it looks like when we linger just a little bit longer at the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this grace you have offered us, for the mercy that you have shown through Christ Jesus, who has changed our lives, who redeems our suffering, whom we look forward to when we imagine our promised land. Father, be with us now in this time of suffering and wandering, questioning and doubting, that we might find in your Son rest. Through Christ we pray. Amen.